Today's passage again is Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Good morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today where we are asking the question, what is the vision of the church? We are taking a look at several of the core values that we have in our church, things that you would find in the very front of our membership class materials, looking at those core values, and we're trying to understand better who we are and where we're going as a church. What is the vision of the church? And so far, we've seen that the gospel is central to everything that we do here at Renewal that all of our ministries, all of our activities have to tie in some way to what Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. We've seen that the only way that we can engage those ministries and activities like Jesus would is to rely on his power in us to live them out. We've seen that the gospel is central to everything that we're about as a church. That's our starting point. Last week, we built on that, recognizing that one of the key ways that we express that centrality is in our worship that the gospel frees us now from being scared of god so that we love him we praise him we honor him we value him we place him at the center of our lives today we're turning a little bit more now to how the church functions how this central gospel then gets lived out among us what does that look like and let me sort of throw a caveat in here up front just like the last two weeks we have to be careful not to think like someone in marketing. No offense to those of you who are marketers, but we need to be careful of the temptation to think of church as having distinctions that will match some of our individual tastes or that will have programs that you and I want or particular emphases that set one church off against another. We have to be careful of how our culture tempts us to think that the distinctions between churches are more important than how the church as a whole is distinct from the rest of humanity. I was reflecting on this again this last week. One of our uh, teenagers, one of Renewal's teens, reached out to me a couple days ago. She had a school assignment where she was supposed to ask a church leader several different questions about church. And one of them was, what is the purpose of the church? Now, I think I know what she's being asked there. I tried to give a response that was helpful. But if you think about it, that's a really odd question. Because if you ask first what the church is, you realize that from God's perspective, we are the visible gathering of what? Of the people of the new creation. We're the new humanity. We are where the new humanity collects itself. So when you ask the question, what's the purpose of the church? You're really asking, what's the purpose 
of the new humanity. As you go through scripture, you realize the purpose of the new humanity is to be the restored humanity. It's to now live the life that human beings were always supposed to live. Our purpose is to live like God created us to live, a purpose that humanity threw away. You remember back in the garden, Adam sinned. He rejected God, God's intentions for us. And in that moment, we stopped being truly human. Truly human in the sense that God made us in his image so that we are to live our lives here reflecting him, representing him in everything that we do. But because we are now descended from Adam, we lost that ability. And so the human race does not function here on earth as God intended. We lost that ability, and that's what Jesus came to restore. Came to make the human race fully human again. Came to restore to our, us our place of imaging God, representing God in how we live daily life. So by uniting us to himself, we're no longer simply descended from Adam. We are now spiritually descended from Christ. And he did that so that we can take back the place that we were always supposed to have. So when you ask the question, what's the purpose of the church? What you're really asking is, what's the purpose of humanity? What's the purpose of the human race? Why are people here? I didn't go into all that in my answer to this young lady. But the purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever in everything that we do. That is not something that you market. That's something that you are. That's not something where you pit one church against another so that they can compete, each one trying to increase their market share. Instead, that's something that you step back and, and just are amazed at. That God would so love us that he would sacrifice himself in order to give us back what we threw away. When you get on board with that, when you see what God is doing in this world, that kind of miraculous work among us, then verse 43, what does it do? It fills you with all. It's what it did with the early Christians. It fills you with all because not only do you see what God's doing, but you're now brought into the middle of what he's doing. You experience it. You experience the difference that the gospel makes to fallen humanity. And so you experience the gospel restoring you in the middle of a restored community, restoring us to a relationship with God, restoring us in relationship with each other. And it fills you with awe that despite your best efforts to run from God, to keep yourself from him, that he has taken you and put you at the very heart of everything that he's doing. You have that sense of awe this morning? You should. I should. Or maybe you can remember that at one point in time you had it, but you lost it. Here's the goodness of God. You and I can have it again. Because you get it by entering into the life of the church. The church that he brought you into. That's where the early Christians experienced it. It's where you and I experienced it as well. So for today, so we can have this kind of awe or regain this kind of awe, I want to ask two questions. First, where does the church live out this new humanity that leaves them in awe? And second, how does the church live this out? Just two points for today, a lot of sub-points as usual, but just two main points. Where does the church live out the new humanity, and how does she do so? First, where? 
Go back through chapter 2, and let's take a look at what the church is doing. Verse 42, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're coming together to be taught. And they're also devoted to each other. Verse 42, devoted to fellowship, to spending lots of time together, to eating together. That's what the breaking of bread is used to refer to. When you get to the second century, breaking bread refers to communion, but not at the time when Luke is writing. Here it just means they ate together. And apparently they did it a lot. Verse 46, they met every day for worship and to eat together, meeting in their homes. And so what you're seeing here is an incredibly active community that's really tight-knit. They're so close that verse 44, you can just say that they're together. It's just normal for them to be in each other's lives. It's normal for people to see them together. And you realize that as they're together, they went to a pretty deep level with each other. So that verse 45, they knew what each, other, each other's needs were. And they took care of those needs. Now think about all of those things together. Because there's an assumption here, there's an underlying condition that has to be true first in order for any of these things, much less all of them, to take place. Think about them again. They're learning the same things from the same people, being together, eating together. They have these really deep, thick relationships every day, all the time, in each other's homes. What's this underlying condition? It's that this all takes place locally. That this kind of life is only possible if what? If the Christians are in close physical proximity to each other. If they're in the same geographical area with each other. I'll just remind you of what you already know. There are no cars. There are no bicycles. No cell phones. No email. No long distance kind of instant communication. So if people are even slightly spread out, what happens? This all falls apart. The life of the community falls apart. The awe is no longer there. You can't always be together if your houses are a couple miles apart. You're, you're not having dinner together then every day. You're not always seen with each other unless what? Unless you live close enough to each other to engage in this kind of community with this kind of regularity. In that sense, the regular life of the church takes place locally. This kind of together life can only happen locally. Very clear in Scripture that God does not call us to be lone rangers in the Christian life, but he calls us to be part of each other's lives in order to live out this new life together, which means that you have to have these kinds of relationships where you're running into each other on a regular basis. That's why here at Renewal we emphasize the importance of the local church. We believe that the gospel-centered local church is central to what God is doing, central to his redemptive mission on this earth. And we believe that it's the local church that is the hope for our broken and needy world. Now, if you want to proof text this, you could go back to the book of Nehemiah. We studied that a couple years ago. And you discover there that as the Israelites rebuilt the protective wall around Jerusalem, that they did so in local communities. Some repaired the wall that was opposite to their house. Other people gathered together from a surrounding area to work on a particular segment of the wall. And it was through these localized settings 
that God worked where people invested locally so that God then accomplished his larger purposes for his people. That'd be one way to see this local emphasis. Here's another way. Look at the commands in Scripture that tell us how we live now in this family of God. And you realize that all of those commands make the same assumption that Acts chapter 2 makes. That you can only live them out, you can only obey them if you are in tight, close-knit relationships where you are regularly in each other's lives. For instance, you can't carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, unless you're in someone's life enough to know what their burdens are and to know what would help them in carrying those burdens. Or Hebrews 3.13, you can't encourage someone daily. They can't encourage you daily unless you're close enough to be in each other's lives daily. Or Hebrews 13.7, you can't consider the outcome of your leader's way of life, the leaders who speak the word of God to you. You can't consider the outcome of their life. You can't imitate their faith if you're not close enough to them to see them live their faith. You have to be close enough, local enough, that you can invite them over for dinner that you can talk with them about their faith, that you can see what it looks like on a regular basis. You have to be local enough in order to consider the outcome, the results of their faith, and to be able to imitate it. You realize that can keep on going, right? Take any of the one anothering commands in Scripture. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. And you realize those are only possible to live out if what? if you actually know one another, if you're in one another's lives, if you're actively involved in a local church. Now, does that mean that megachurches are bad, that regional churches are bad? Not necessarily. But it does mean that you have to do the work, then, of finding local connections within those larger organizations. The kind of regular relationships that will let you live out the commands of the new community. Early in our marriage, Sally and I joined a larger church. I think it was like around 600 or so. And I remember telling this to my mom and my mom saying, oh, I, I, I could never do that. I could ne that's just too big. I wouldn't feel like I knew anyone. And I said to her, I get that Sunday morning is different from the, the church that you go to. Her church was about 200 at the time. I get that Sunday morning is different, but tell me something. Let's say that you and Dad were struggling in your marriage. How many people do you have that you would feel comfortable talking to about that? Maybe 20? I knew that was too high, but I was going somewhere with that. Maybe 20? She said, oh, no, not that many. So I said, okay, like what, uh, 10? She said, no. More like two or three, which is kind of where, what I expected. I said, that's actually true for Sally and me also. Yes, we can worship with several hundred people together, but we have to find a smaller group within that larger group. We have to find people we can know, people with whom we can share our lives, who can share their lives with us. And in that sense, even in a megachurch or a regional church, you still have to think local church if you actually want to take part in what God is doing on this earth in the new humanity. 
And that's why at Renewal, our CGs are based on where you live. They're based on geography. Because you need to be close enough to people physically in order to spend the kind of time with them that God envisions. It's why our CGs are local. It's why we don't only think of CGs and Renewal, but we think of CGs and parishes. North Parish, South Parish, and West Parish. Clusters of CGs who can come together and work then together in that more localized region. And we think that way so that one day maybe we'll see a church plant in one of those other regions. And that's because our vision is not to become a large church spread out across this region. Instead, our vision is to keep organizing ourselves so that being local is an essential part of our vision. That's why we think about church planting someday. Someday when we have the resources, both human and financial, so we can have two healthy congregations. But we're thinking in that way because it's clear that God works in this larger world through local congregations. And we're not local if we have to drive a long distance to get to each other and to stay connected with each other. Now, if you enter into this way of thinking, it takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humility from us as renewal. Because when you think about the church being local, and when you think about God working through that local expression, you realize one more time that the church is not primarily a human institution, but that it's God's, and that God sovereignly rules over his church. You have to recognize with humility that it's the Lord, verse 47, who added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The people didn't add to their number. There's no church growth strategy. There's no hired consultants telling them how to increase their numbers. Instead, the Lord added to their number. Humility reminds us we don't grow the church. God does. It is the early church's privilege. They got to live out this new life together with each other. They got to be part of what God was doing here on the earth. But it was God's prerogative to add to that number. It's his decision as to who the each other are that we then get to relate to. And by focusing on being local, we're taking seriously his sovereignty, taking seriously his prerogative, taking seriously that behind all of the reasons why any of us moved into a particular neighborhood, that there's the hand of God behind it, shutting down some options, opening others up, Sally and I have three children. Our middle child, our oldest son, is looking for a house right now. He's about to get married. He and his fiancée are looking for a place to settle into. And through that process, it is incredibly clear that you don't get to live wherever you feel like. For one thing, you can't afford to. But even when you can afford to, there might not be any homes for sale there. Or there might be, but not one that you want. Or if there's one you want, your bid might not be accepted. And you start to realize that behind all of the decisions and actions is the sovereign hand of God doing what? Moving you to where he wants you. Moving you where he wants you for the sake of what he's doing, both in his church and in the larger world. He's putting you in a particular local setting for his purposes. And that means that you and I have to take him seriously. That we are in the neighborhood that we're in for a reason. That you're in the school district you are for a reason. 
that you have the job that you have for a reason. And that reason is to live out what it means to be part of the new humanity with other new humanity people who God puts in the same geographical place in front of other people who are not yet part of the new humanity. God moves his people among the nations for his purposes, which means that we have to take seriously our localness. We have to take seriously what it means for us to be local, what it means for us to live in the Philadelphia suburbs and not somewhere else, what it means for us to live among highly professional people who he's called us to reach, what it means to live out our faith in him in this local setting as opposed to some others somewhere else, to learn how to care about the people whose lives he puts us in because we are here in part because he cares about them cares enough to put us with them. God is growing his church globally. How's he doing that? By adding people to it locally. As his people live out their new faith with each other. Take him seriously. Take your part in his work seriously. And what? You'll, you'll have a front row seat to what he's doing. Which will leave you in awe as you get to see it. That's point one, that the church lives out her life locally. Point two, how does she do that? What does she do? I'm going to touch on three things that you see here. It's in these local settings that the church grows together spiritually, that she cares for the people's well-being within the church, and that they live this new life out in public, in full view of the rest of the world. Take them one at a time. The first, the church grows together spiritually. Verse 42, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You remember the apostles are the 12 men that Jesus handpicked. He picked them to be with him, to learn from him, and then he was going to send them out as his authoritative spokesman, his witnesses to what they had seen and to what that meant. And as you read the Gospels, you, you just see Jesus working incredibly hard to help them, help them learn Scripture the way that he understands Scripture to help them see that it all pointed back to Christ in some way, and to see then the implications for what that meant for their lives. They learn this for three years, and then you hear that focus. You read the sermons in the book of Acts, and you hear that focus. You read through the New Testament letters, you hear that focus. And you start to see that over and over and over again, they taught Scripture with a Christ-centered focus that resulted in some kind of biblical application for how to live. And I want you to think about what it means then for these first Christians to be devoted to that kind of teaching, to the apostles' teaching. Think about who these Christians are. They've come out of a very religious tradition. It goes back centuries. They themselves are religious Jews. They either are in Jerusalem because they live there or because they've traveled there for the day of Pentecost. It was one of their annual festivals. They are religious, well-studied, observant Jews who now do what? They devote themselves to being taught. They don't say, oh, I get it. Jesus is now added on to everything that I already knew. He's, he's kind of stuck on to the stuff that I grew up learning. Now that I've understood that that's what Jesus is, I'm good to go. I can just fall back on all of the religious training that I already have. They don't say that. 
Instead, Jesus so radically reshapes how they've approached God, how they've approached religion, how they've approached each other, how they've approached living in faith, so radically reshapes all that that they devoted themselves to learning what it means that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah. They dedicated themselves to learning in a way that they hadn't before. See, the Apostle Paul do the same thing. Raised in Judaism to be a good, upright, moral person. He's doing a great job at it. He says in Galatians 1.14 that when it came to being religious, he surpassed many of those his own age. But then he met Jesus. And his immediate response was to go off the grid for three years. Implications there that, that he was learning, that he was digging deeper into who Jesus was and into what that meant for living as a follower of Christ. He didn't just glue Jesus on to what he already had. But the reality of who Jesus is transformed his entire approach to life. Now what's that mean for us? It means you can't take this kind of devotion to Christ-centered biblical teaching too seriously. You cannot be too devoted to learning and understanding, not too devoted to applying your faith, to learning to live out the life of the new humanity. You especially can't take that too seriously in light of our present society. It used to be that the social structures of our country were close enough to Christian morality that you could take for granted that the moral compass of the church, the moral compass of the new humanity, was pretty close to what it was in the larger world, that it was at least largely supported by the larger world. You realize that the early Christians could have made that same assumption, that following Jesus really didn't look all that different from what they were used to. They could have made that assumption, and they didn't. And we can't either. It's increasingly obvious that how Jesus calls the human race to live puts us at odds with where the world is heading. And so if you want to follow Jesus now, you can't afford to go on autopilot through life. You can't just absorb the things that our larger world tells you to believe or how it tells you to think and think that you can then glue Jesus onto that. It's not enough. To have a Sunday school education and expect that that will stand up in this world. Sunday school is good. I'm not knocking our children's programs, but Sunday school is what? It's a start, not a finish. It's not the end. You have to be devoted to this kind of teaching. You have to learn. You have to study. You have to put as much time into studying your faith as you do anything else. And I'm not being dramatic here to make a point. I really mean that you have to study your faith like you study nothing else. I don't mean on any given day it's a one-for-one one so that each day you, you study calculus for an hour and then you study your faith for an hour. I mean that over the course of your lifetime that you end up putting way more time and energy into studying your faith than you ever put into studying any one subject like calculus. I mean that you put so much time and effort into studying your faith that you end up being an expert in your faith even if you never master calc. That's what it means to devote yourself to understanding what the apostles taught about Christ. And that's something that you can't do on your own. But you have to do it in a community. You have to do it with others. Because you can't maintain, I can't maintain, 
that level of intensity on our own. And because you can't figure out how to understand and apply your faith on your own. You need a community for that. See, on Sunday morning, what can I do? What can other teachers do? We can help point out what is true. We can give some ideas for what that might mean for your life. But that doesn't mean that your faith has actually penetrated your heart and is now a part of you. Instead, your faith gets worked into your life as you wrestle with it in community. As you hear other brothers and sisters making sense of the faith. As you hear them applying it to their lives. As you hear them struggle with how to believe this and, and, and watch them come to greater faith. And as you enter into that process with them, you have your own struggles, your own sense-making, your own applications. That's how the faith gets worked into your life. Again, that's a crucial reason why we have CGs. It's one of the primary reasons that we, ways that we are trying to grow together as a church. We're processing together what we learn on a Sunday morning, growing together. It's also why we have discipleship groups, or sometimes we'll call them discipleship pods. They're a place where a smaller group of people get together to learn, how does this new life get worked out in my life? As you study scripture, you realize there are serious passages about how our enemy, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom, whom he can devour, who he can pick off. If you are not devoted to continuing to learn lifelong, and if you're not devoted to doing that in community, you're making yourself an easy target for him. And you're cutting yourself out of this life that Jesus worked so hard to bring you into. If you want to be in awe of what God is doing, you have to be devoted to Christ-centered biblical instruction. Early church did that. Cared for the spiritual needs of their members. Secondly, they also cared for each other's physical needs. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is not some kind of proto-communism, proto-socialism. The possessions were still their own. They still had authority over them to sell them if they wanted, or as Acts chapter 5 teaches us, to not sell them if they didn't want. It's not socialism where someone else dictates what you do with what you have. What is this? This is a change in how you think about your possessions. It's a change in how you relate to them. A change that comes because you are now valuing other people over what you have. So that if others have true legitimate needs, then you care about those needs. Why? Because you realize that God cared about yours. That he has made you family together. And, care, and so you care about other people's needs because what unites you now with other Christians is vastly more important than what divides you. And so you now care about the health of this new humanity because it's part of you and you're part of it. You care so much about it that you're willing to part with some of your stuff in order to maintain the health in some other place. This is what you do practically when you realize that everything that you have really is a gift from God anyway. You recognize, sure, you've worked hard for what you have, but that's only because you took advantage of the opportunities that God gave you. See, if you had been born in the middle of the ninth century to peasants in a remote location, 
do you think for one moment that you would have everything that you have now? Even if you worked as hard then as you do now? You realize, no, the, the fact that you have what you have is a gift of God. God not only gives you the abilities that you have, he gives you the opportunities to use them. In that sense, all that you have really does come from him. And when he adds you to this new humanity, you now want to think about, how, how do I use God what you've given to me to care about what you care about? How do I care about your people? Which, again, means that you have to be close enough to each other, local enough to each other, to know what each other needs. And this is something that we already do here at Renewal. It's something that we need to keep prioritizing, but it is something that we already do. Had the opportunity to talk to two of our families this past week who have had significant need, not necessarily financial. But as we talked together and I asked, what, what is it that you need? Both families talked about how well their CG had cared for them. That's good. That is something that God has built into us as a church, something that we need to value. And it, in order to do that, it's something we're going to have to keep in the front of our mind as God adds to our number doesn't always mean that we're providing physical things. Sometimes it'll mean that we are providing for emotional needs or for relational needs, for childcare needs, or for needs for a husband and wife to get away for a weekend without the kids, needs for a single person to have some fellowship and community. And because that's what someone else needs, you are willing then to give up your time, your schedule, your quieter home, for the sake of your brother and sister. But you can't enter into this kind of radical interdependent caring unless what? Unless you're in close, intimate relationships. Close enough to know what someone needs because you know them. So the early church cared for each other's spiritual and physical needs. And then third, they also did this publicly. Lived out the life of the new humanity where it was visible to everyone. They didn't hide their lifestyle or their relationships. But they met daily, verse 46, in the temple courts. They're, they're highly visible. They're not afraid of being seen. People saw what the Christians did, and they saw how they did it, verse 46. That the Christians did so with glad and generous hearts. They, they were visibly happy when you saw them. And what people saw looking from the outside left a positive impact on them. So at verse 47, these first Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people. People looking in from the outside saw the quality of their lives. They saw these people's devotion to God. They saw their devotion to each other. And these external observers approved of what they saw. It's a big part of the reason why God leaves us here. It's to show that not only does he call the human race to a different kind of life, but to demonstrate that that's a really good life. That's a life worth living. I heard from a friend outside of Renewal, heard from a friend this past week about a youth leader that she knows. Youth leader was talking with a student who was in crisis, and as they talked together, the teenager, young lady, said to her youth leader, you talk like Jesus is the answer to everything. Are you sure you're not just making up how good he is to get me to believe? And apparently this youth leader smiled and then told the teen about all the things that Jesus had done for her, all the things that he'd saved her from. They prayed together, they really felt God's presence together, and the teen said, 
the way my friends light up when they talk about boys is how you light up when you talk about Jesus. I believe everything you're telling me is true. Why is that? She can see it. Friends, you're here in the Philadelphia suburbs, in your workplaces, students in your classrooms, so that others can see you light up when you talk about Jesus. Larger world may not like our doctrine. They may not like what God tells us is true about himself, what's true about ourselves. Shouldn't surprise us, the world's never like that. But the world cannot deny the reality of the goodness that comes out of lives when God touches a person. 1 Peter 2.12 puts it this way, that you and I should live such good lives among people who don't believe that they will literally glorify God on the day when he visits us because of the good things that they've seen us do. God left us here, left you and me here to reach people with our lives. People who need that local touch, not just to hear what's true, but to see it lived out in front of them with glad and generous hearts. And when you and I live that way, we should not be surprised if God adds to our number those who are being saved, which will leave us in awe. Which really sounds like I should end there. But I can't because this is not a church growth strategy. This is not something where you and I say, okay, we want to be an important, respected, influential church in this reason. That's our purpose. So here's how we do that. Study hard, empty our bank accounts, and be bold. Here we go. We can't say that because that's not what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. Instead, what you're seeing in Acts 2 are the results of something that already happened. This is not a strategy to make something happen. This is the response, the way that you respond to something else, rather than the way that you produce a response. See, this section comes right after a sermon that Peter preached. It comes after God had poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. Peter got up to explain what's going on, what God is doing in the world through his son. And Peter ends his sermon by saying, verse 36, it's kind of a downer, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now what did Peter just say? He just said, they blew it. Not one or two of them, but that all the house of Israel had blown it. That God had called them, going all the way back to Abraham, to live out a radically different kind of life here on earth. To live as his people, loving him, loving others, in such a public way that all the nations could see what that looked like. God was explicit. He blessed them so that they would then be a blessing to all the nations. That was their purpose, to be the new humanity. They hadn't done it. They couldn't. Over and over, they proved they did not have the power to live that out. And so God did what? He sent his son to live out that new humanity kind of life in front of everyone. And they missed that too. 
They couldn't even see what God was doing when he was working right under their noses. They had more than enough access to everything that God was doing, and they blew it. They were extremely religious. Had the scriptures, read them, knew them, took part in all kinds of religious activities. And they were deeply stuck in a lifestyle of rejecting God that did not build a caring, generous community. They were stuck and completely unaware of how badly they were stuck. Had not lived out the new humanity lifestyle because they weren't part of the new humanity. And that's why Jesus came. He came to show us what a true human being is like. Showed us what it means to be devoted to God and to other human beings. And he lived that out in plain sight. He lived the life that we should have lived. And that wasn't enough. Because we needed more than an example. We still didn't have the power to live it ourselves. We could see it, but we couldn't live it. We were still drowning under the weight of all of our failures to live it. And so Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died. He paid for every time we rejected God's way of life. He paid so that what? So that God could add us to his church. So that he could pour his spirit into us. So that we now share in Christ's humanity. So we're now truly human. Which gives us the power to live out this lifestyle that he did. Jesus lived and died and lives again to give us back what we could never give to ourselves. Lived and died so that we could be saved, part of this new humanity. See what Jesus has done, but do more than that. Experience it yourself. Experience it personally. And it will rekindle all in you. It will leave you praising God. It will leave you living a glad, generous life that'll be incredibly obvious to everyone around you. Lord, would you please so energize us with what you have done that we dedicate ourselves to what you're doing, that we take the time, the energy to invest ourselves among your people in the larger world. Lord, that as important as our careers are to us, our hobbies, our homes, that what you're doing would be that much more special and that we would give ourselves to it that much more wholeheartedly, that we would praise you, be in awe of you for having brought us into this life of, and for giving us a new opportunity both to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's